Gurmashi has many Bhagavad Gita's on his bookshelf from secular writers and writer authors from different sampradayas. And the way he feels about it is, let me hear what it says to them. How does the Gita speak to them? So that he can find something more in the text than he might have found himself. So this, just the way he approaches the Bhagavad Gita, there's a great lesson in it to us about being a Sargrahi Vaishnav and being secure in our own position so that we can venture out and, and accept, respect, and respect others where, where they are. So if you if you think about it, really it's it's quite natural since Krishna says that he reciprocates with us how we approach him, he reciprocates. So many people approach the Bhagavad Gita for many different things coming from many different places. So of course it is going to speak differently to them, just like Krishna reciprocates differently with, with people. However, we, just because there's a multitude of ways to express it, we shouldn't um, devalue the specificity it also holds. Um, otherwise, things just get really hodgepodgey. And um, it would be like saying that Krishna is everything, therefore, it's all one. And I don't really have to worship anything because Krishna is everything. I don't have to pursue a particular path. It's all one, you know, very good. But it's, it's not all one in, in every sense. There's different conceptual orientations, and they will lead to different methods of practice. And those pra different practices will produce very different um, destinations. And by our own faith and commitment, we will naturally think that our path is the best. And it is for us. We should think that our path is the best for us. Otherwise, why would we pursue it? Why would we dedicate ourselves to it? We can respect other paths objectively and honor their faith and particular approach while holding our own subjective understanding that our approach is the best for me. So the Gaudiya perspective leads to pure love of the absolute at home, where he is his most um, original self. From this conceptual orientation, the Gaudiyas have selected these four verses, chapter 10 in the Bhagavad Gita, verses 8 through 11, as holding the essence of the Gita. And Baladev Vidyabhushan, he actually said that these four verses are the womb from which the essence of the Gita arises. So the Gaudiyas although it can be seen as a subjective understanding, they also offer some very powerful um, reasoning as to, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as to why these four verses are objectively speaking the essence of the Gita. I have to change my slide. Um, and that is simply put because Krishna is speaking and they are devotees of Krishna. And not only devotees of Krishna, but devotees of Krishna in a very extraordinary way, in a way that affords them access to understanding him intimately. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjuna that he is revealing these secrets to him because he is his devotee and friend. 
So it makes sense that those who can explain it in its highest sense are those who are devotees of Krishna, like Arjun, who have a personal relationship with him. And Srila Prabhupada, in the introduction to his Bhagavad Gita, he says that it is best understood in the spirit of devotion. It's like if you were going to read a biography of a famous person, you could read one that's written by um, their spouse or written by a historian. There's going to be a difference, although it's about the same person. And on the cover of the, of the one written by the spouse, you'll see you know, this little blurb that says, get the intimate details, because this, this is what we want. They, they say, you know, we use the phrase juicy details, and that's where the juice is. The taste is in the details. It's in the intimacy. So Gaudias have this intimacy that they can share with others. And it is actually the level of intimacy um, with the Godhead that they use to assess the different manifestations of, of God. The form of God that you can get the closest to, um, that you can become the most closely united with in a dynamic sense, which is important, an important differentiation, is Swayam Bhagavan. And that Swayam Bhagavan is Krishna. The intimacy found in Krishna Bhakti presented by the Gaudias, it's not really discussed anywhere else as comprehensively. There might be mention of it in some Christian mystical um, personalities like um, St. Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross, where they speak of becoming the, the um, bridesmaid of God. <coughs> but it's something that's only briefly mentioned um, and not really delved into, into deeply, but the Gaudias, they present it in a comprehensive tatsa. And they present it as a dynamic, loving union, not where um, the object of love and the vessel in, of love, where one of them disappears, one of them is canceled out, but where the two um, in love become we. So not all schools of bhakti teach this and not all schools of bhakti even teach that bhakti is the goal. There are schools of bhakti, which sounds weird, but there are schools of bhakti that teach that jnana is the goal, that knowledge is the goal. And once you have attained knowledge, then it, it all stops. There's nothing more to do. And you can just sit peacefully, shanti, shanti. And how they see it, and we also see this too, that action in relation to things and the subsequent attachment that that's derived from that is, is ignorance. So if you have knowledge, then your, your pursuit for enduring life will not be found in things that are here today and gone tomorrow, where there are apparent, um, where apparent diversity, not real diversity, but apparent diversity doesn't really exist. You know, your cold, is different from somebody else's cold. So your hot may be their cold, uh, happy and sad. For you, what is hot is perhaps your partner's what is cold. So, you know, which, which one is it? Is it really hot or is it really cold? Or is it really neither? There's um, an example of this. If you have three bowls of water, one is a very hot bowl, of, one is a bowl of very hot water. The other is on the other side is a bowl of very cold water. And in the center is a bowl of room temperature water. So you have two people and one person puts their one hand in the hot 
water and their hand in the room temperature water, they're going to say that the room temperature water is cold. The person with their hand in the cold water and their hand in the room temperature water is going to say that the room temperature water is hot. So which is it? It's, it's really neither. So the diversity, the differences are thought to be illusory. Therefore, they conclude that reality must be a unity. If diversity is the problem, then the solution is unity. But they consider unity as an undifferentiated unity where everything is oh, just one and calm and peaceful and their path ends there. Their path ends in knowledge. This is the Gyanmarg. And this is what Gurmaraj describes many, many times as loving to exist. They use bhakti to gradually um, wean themselves from entanglement in the material world. And once they have accrued enough knowledge to accomplish this, then they have no need for bhakti. They stop giving and they sit forever. And that's all they do. So this is saguna bhakti, where there is some bhakti, but it is for the sake of transcending this world and of being still. There is a different kind of bhakti. It's called nirguna bhakti. And this is bhakti for the sake of bhakti. This is a giving for the sake of giving and a loving for the sake of loving. We have, and, and the kind of love we have spoken about in these classes before is a wise love. It is a love that contains knowledge. It includes the knowledge. So Gurmar says, peace and love, not just peace, but peace and love. Bhakti continues into transcendence. And this continuation is where the reciprocal dealings with the absolute occur. And this is the centerpiece of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. This is what Gaudiyas have to offer to, to the world. And they think that these four verses are the central verses of the Gita because they talk about the, cent the center of the life of God, the love of his devotees. So what was brought out in the first of these verses is I am the source of everything. That's what Krishna says, that Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. And it ends with this fourth verse with him appearing in the hearts of his devotees. This Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam is the decoder for all other sutras. Like if you have, if you go on an archeological dig and they find a tablet of um, Mayan um, ruins, you know, they will spend decades trying to figure out what this is saying, what these pictographs mean, what does this represent? And they can come up with gazillion different ways to, to think about it. But once they have found the, the key, like the legend to understanding a map, then everything is interpreted around that and things fall into place. All the different pieces that they had figured out here and figured out there, they all come together. So that is what's meant by this Parivas Sutra. It is the key to understanding, to unlocking all of the teachings that all the other knowledge that are, that's held in the other sutras. Krishna is the origin of Bhagavan. Everything comes from him and everything else is understood in relationship to that. This knowledge, as Gurmaraj poetically states, is the philosophical canvas on which loving exchanges are drawn. 
I am the source of all spiritual and material worlds. Everything emanates from me. The wise who perfectly know this engage in my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. So knowing this, we are in a very good position to develop love for Krishna. And love, not, not just love, but love in intimacy, a wise love. And the, the second of the four verses speaks of the action that arises out of this conceptual orientation, out of this knowledge that Krishna is the source of all. And this is bhakti. These actions are bhakti. So the second verse, the thoughts of my pure devotees dwell in me. Their lives are fully devoted to me, to my service, and they derive great satisfaction and bliss from always enlightening one another and conversing about me. So this speaks not just of bhakti, but of a special kind of bhakti, uttam bhakti, a superlative idea of bhakti, <clears throat> where actions are favorable and pleasing to Krishna. And it, it, these actions are, are actually cultured. And this is the perfection of Dharma. Dharma is one of the things that you'll find on the internet that people tell you the Gita is all about Dharma. And we can agree that it's about paro Dharma or the highest reach of Dharma, which is um, to act in such a way that, that Krishna is pleased. He's not pleased when we ask for things, right? He's not pleased when we ask for freedom from things. But when we ask, you know, what are, what are you about? What makes you tick? Who, who are you? You know, he thinks, wow, practically nobody's interested in that. So he's very, um, it really perks his, his, his attention. <clears throat> when I was young, I don't know how old I was. <clears throat> um, I kind of crazily wrote a letter to Cher, you know, the musician Cher, because I started thinking, and again, I don't know why I would think these things, but anyway, that it must be really hard to be famous because when you're famous, everybody wants something from you. You don't know who your friends are. How, how do you know who your friends are? They could just be somebody who wants to get close to you so they can have access to your stuff, to your fame, to your money, whatever. So I, I thought this must be a real burden for them. So for some crazy reason, I wrote to Cher and said, you know, if you ever want a place to just get away and be yourself, not have to worry about people <clears throat> wanting things from you, you can come and, and stay at my place. Now, I never heard back from her. I don't know if she got the letter. She didn't reciprocate very well, but we don't have to worry about that because Krishna reciprocates fully. But it's kind of the same way. You know, he's the most famous and it's hard for him to, um, that's actually Maya's job to weed out who actually is a devotee, who really does want to just have lunch with Krishna and not turn that lunch into a, a business date. You know, they just want to be there for him, um, loving him. So that's actually what Maya does for Krishna. <clears throat> so he is very pleased by the actions, the Abhideya, which is the, the method um, described in this second verse. There, it, hearing and chanting is very powerful because by hearing and chanting, then the mind becomes absorbed and one can enter into smaranam and a, a real kind of smaranam that is the very life of a devotee. This is the sitting. This is the sitting in bhakti. If we want to sit in a particular way, then we have to walk in a particular way. There's, you know, Gurmarsh says these little short things, which just 
really grasp the idea. So this is, Gurmaraj has a sutra in regards to this. He says, we cannot sit for meditation if we walk for sense gratification. And what this is means is to move in the world forgetting, not forget, well, yes, forgetting, but for getting. And to think that it will be things that will improve my situation. I must have this, I must have that, then I'll be happy. But these, we're just being moved by the mind and the mind is being informed by faulty senses. You know, this will make me happy, this will make me sad. But we know that the senses, they are faulty with the bowls of water, right? What, what is the, the real thing? So when we live in this world that of the mind where we're being influenced by the senses, we actually can't get close to anyone. Like I, we discussed last, last um, class that unless our relationships facilitate the pursuit of something beyond our minds, something beyond our small sense of self, and to love beyond our self, um, our relationships will, will not be enduring, they'll not be satisfying. <clears throat> so, but in pursuit of that center, of the fully reciprocating center, then our relationships with each other will be very nourishing and needful. They are necessary. So there is this sitting aspect to bhakti, and it's, it's the internal, the internal life of the devotee. And there is the walking aspect of bhakti also, the external life. And what we do externally will foster our internal bhakti. And eventually we will view the whole external world in relationship to that internal world. So because their breath, their prana is completely dedicated to Krishna, there is no difference between their walking and their sitting. There's no difference. So this is why Lord Chaitanya could say, Mamma Janmani Janmanishvare, Bhavatad Bhaktar Ahoytakitayi, that I only want your causeless devotional service, birth after birth. It doesn't matter if I'm here or there, if I'm in hell or if I'm heavenly planet. It it doesn't matter because it's it's all coming from the same place, a place of loving service. There is no, no difference. Our goal is to please Krishna and to serve him. So it doesn't matter where that is to us or the conditions under which it is. The third and fourth verses of the essential verses of the Bhagavad Gita point to the prayojan of bhakti, the fruit that the fruit of the action of bhakti, and that fruit is prema. Amongst all the lineages of Vedanta, prema is only used by the Gaudiyas in terms of their ideal. Other sampradayas, they speak of mukti, of liberation, but the Gaudiyas, this is not so much their concern because for them, Mukti is a byproduct of bhakti. It just comes naturally of its own accord. There is no separate endeavor or even necessity for it. The knowledge and renunciation, which are the goals of the other paths, they endeavor specifically for them. They're only useful to, to um, devotees in the beginning. 
And Grimrush tells a, a funny story example, but it's quite fitting that if you are, if your car is stalled, you might call over a couple guys and say, hey, could you guys give me a push? You know, so they push downhill and once the car gets going, then it's, you know, off and gone and the guys are left behind in the dust. Well, those guys, the, that is gyan and vairagya, that is knowledge and renunciation. A little in the beginning is good, but then it, it is no longer necessary. Bhakti takes over. So knowledge that comes in the context of bhakti exceeds, it goes far beyond the knowledge that comes to those who cultivate it directly. And here in the fourth verse, Krishna explains that he comes himself as knowledge. Out of compassion for them, I, dwelling in their hearts, destroy the darkness born of ignorance with the effulgent lamp of knowledge. I give them booty yoga so my devotees can come to me. I give bhav to my devotees who are on the rag marg. And in prem, I give the knowledge to the gopis as to how we can meet secretly. This is all special knowledge. It is not atmagyan. It is not knowledge of how the self is different from the objective world. The, his devotees have no need for that kind of knowledge. Um, when Uddhava went to deliver the message of Krishna, and I recommend everybody um, tune in to Padmanabhaswami's classes where he speaks of the song of the bumblebee, which is around, around this topic here. So Uddhava is delivering the mess, Krishna's message to the gopis to try to pacify them and calm them in his absence. And he starts speaking totally about, you know, Atmagyan, don't, you know, don't worry, you're not these bodies, things are temporary, sometimes you're together, sometimes you're apart. And they're like, oh my gosh, he just, he doesn't understand what Krishna is actually saying here. So they gopi explained it to him. Um, they explained what Krishna was actually saying in terms of his love for them. Just like the Gaudias interpret the Bhagavad Gita in terms of their love for Krishna. And um, Lord Chaitanya was moved by Ramananda's mention of Gyan Shunya Bhakti in the Ramananda Samvad. And this is Bhakti unencumbered by Gyan. And I totally love this word, unencumbered. It's, it is bhakti that is not burdened or inhibited by knowledge. The gyan of bhakti um, serves their bhakti and they only know themselves as Krishna's friend or their parent or his parent or his lovers. And this is the gyan that Krishna himself gives. This is the gyan that he is. You love me and I will reveal myself. I will come there myself. And he actually has to come there. In this verse, it's kind of interesting because it says out of compassion for them. So what kind of compassion is this? We've heard that Krishna doesn't have compassion for the conditioned souls because he does not experience the suffering that the conditioned souls experience. He, he, can't, he doesn't identify. He has no experience in his own realm of existence that is corresponds to the suffering that the, jiva, that the conditioned jiva experiences. So here he talks about compassion. So he would have to, it would have to be a type of suffering that he has experience of 
for him to have that feeling of compassion elicited. So this type of suffering is that of separation. That's something that Krishna can identify with. So it is out of that type of suffering on his devotee's part, the devotee of separation, I mean, the, um, the suffering of separation that he responds to and comes himself. He himself mitigates this darkness, the, the dark night of the soul, the suffering of separation and illuminates their heart. And he doesn't illuminate it like he does for the yogis or the jnanis by shining a light on things that are still external to them, but he actually appears within them, within their heart personally. We've heard before Guru Maharaj has said that Krishna replaces the Paramatma in the heart of his devotee. So here, this is what Krishna is saying, that he resides, he dwells within their heart. And he illumines the heart, the hearts of other kinds of practitioners, even those who um, don't approach him in the same way as his devotees do, as his pure devotees do. But for the jnani, they don't even want um, they're not interested in a form of God. They just want to live forever. Still, he appears as the lamp, but not within their heart. He destroys the ignorance of attachment, and he does give liberation. But in the case of the devotee, he appears there as the very lamp. And with that lamp, their hearts are fully melted, and they're their ecstasy is churned. He brings them to Prem. And for the devotee, he is the light itself. So these four verses are the full reach of what the Gita is pointing to. And that is the leelas that are described in detail in the Bhagavad. So somehow I have. Um, zoomed through all of my notes and I, I have reached the end. So I'm going to open this up for any kind of discussion and um, corrections or anything that you would like to say about the, the four essential verses of the Bhagavad Gita. So anyone have anything? Haribol, it's Omkar. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you so much. Okay. The cicadas have quieted enough, so now my voice. <laughs> um, I have a kind of double-sided question. Um, it's by what you said at the very end about Krishna. I guess Kurmaraj, you, you quoted saying, Krishna replaced Paramatma in the devotee's heart. So yes. I was wondering, because this verse is kind of, interpreted a little differently and that would change the way that one would look at this statement um, but the first question first part of the question would be that what point of asadaka's development would that happen would that be once you become a devotee you can start seeing that or when i honestly i don't know the specific point at which that happens and i i suspect that the honest answer is that the, our acharyas have different, would have a different view on it as to when that happens. Some say that um, bhakti is there right from the very beginning, that, um, that Krishna would move in right, at, right in the beginning. And some would say that he, he would come later during different stages of progressing in bhakti. I am, um, 
I can't think of anything specifically that I've heard. If somebody else has, they can please um, respond also. Okay. So sorry, I don't have much for you on that. It's okay, but on the same note, I suppose I was reading the Vishwanath Chakravarta course commentary. And uh, this is by the Narayan Maharaj Gita. So I don't know who translated this Tika or if this translation in itself is actually Vishwanath or Narayan Maharaj. But here, here the word Atma Bhav uh, which is in the heart in Gurmaraj's Gita, is translated meaning dwelling within their intelligence. The Atma, no, sorry, Atma Bhavashto, yeah, that word so i dispel the darkness of their hearts with the lamp of knowledge is what he actually says in the tikka afterwards so it's referred to as knowledge but then he says in the heart so it's kind of confusing to me now if you have any insights on that the question is about like into how to see this intelligence instead being referred to as the atma bhavashto like how can we see that as intelligence and the heart at the same time well yes because the that is where the intelligence for the devotee it is i mean he comes he he that's how he gives the knowledge is through through the heart and it's not really um knowledge and Okay, wise love, right? That's the term that, that we use, wise love. So it's not one without the other. And the Atmabhav, as Gurmaraj translates it, is within their hearts. And jnana is knowledge, but it's a certain type of knowledge. It's the, it's the, the knowledge of how to get to Krishna. And different Vaishnavas will have different interpretations like um, Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj explains that for him, this knowledge is, he sees that it has to be more in the Leela of the gopis meeting, meeting up with Krishna. And he gives them, you know, they pass the notes back and forth as to where to meet, what, um, what day under which which tamal tree so that knowledge is kind of wrapped up in in bhav so it's not that there there's a contradiction but there's a more of a a completion so i don't know if i've addressed what you were um referring yeah. to yeah, I, I think that was nice. And I actually read just a tiny snippet of it here again. And uh, yeah, it makes sense to me. There's no controversy. controversy. The special type of knowledge, I, I can understand. Right. Special kind of knowledge. Yeah, thank you. Hare Krishna. Anybody else? Hare Bo. Hare Krishna. This is Shamananda here. Guys, Shamananda, next sat. Well, next, well, I'll make this um, notice. Next Saturday, Gumraj will be um, being interviewed by Namarasa in on his radio on his podcast. So there won't be um, a top of a vague class. But the following week, Shamananda Prabhu will be um, taking over this spot. So please tune in then. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add uh, about Omkar's first question there about when the Paramatma is, uh, or when, yeah, when Krishna takes over the spot of the Paramatma. Uh -huh. uh, Guru Maharaj writes in, in the Shikshashtakam commentary uh, that when, when Mahaprabhu says, na dhanam na janam na sundarim, uh, he he's like saying that to he's like telling that to the lord of the world kind of like i'm not interested in any any of the things that paramatma is uh presiding over uh so he says i only want want costless bhakti for 
for my um, my pranishvar. So, so, so it's like when you when you don't have any attachment for anything material, but you only want bhakti. That that's when that's when Krishna. Krishna yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. So it'd be kind of like Ruchi. Yeah. Maybe. Yes. Awesome. Anyone else? All right. Well, you're you get extra 15 minutes for hearing and chanting. So thank you very much. I've really appreciated um, this opportunity to engage in service. So, thank Shri you. Bhakti Jai. 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 Thank you, Bhakti Rasa. Jai. Hare Krishna.